hand me a script? Oh, thank you. Oh, hi there, Twitter. It's Friday, you made it, and we have a great show for you. First up, we have the creators of the new Dark Crystal movie, and then Matteo Lane, Nikki Paris, and Daniel Francesi are here to tell jokes with me. So you stick right there, and I'll see you on the timeline. This is not the right one. Thank you. Twitter. I'm Zach Stafford. She's Alex Burke. And you are fortunately now watching AIM to DM, which I almost broke. So you're welcome. It's uh, actually a miracle that we have made it to air considering you were allowed to sit in the director's chair and push the buttons. But I would like to call attention to you tossing the script. And I, a monster. I'm a terrible person. Cancel me now, Twitter. Hashtag Zach is over. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Well, speaking of things that are over, your outfit last night was over in the best way oh, possible. Oh, thank you. Yes. <gasps> I, it was an amazing fashion show at the Brooklyn Museum. Um, it was Dapper Q, which is a website that particularly focuses on androgynous and masculine of center fashion. And they featured 10 designers um, who are all very queer-centric. It was amazingly amazing. inclusive. There was every kind of body and person on the runway. And that was my look. It looked you great. Know? I have been in the past. I was not there last night. I'm so sorry, everyone. There may or may not have been a chair next to me that said Zach Stafford on it. And uh, Allegedly. No one can prove this. It, There's it, no it was, photos. It There's empty. no photos. But I, I support you, Dapper Q. Wonderful show. And happy yeah. New York Fashion Week, everyone. Yes. It has begun. But speaking of beginnings and endings, endings. I think we have a particularly we an ending. Have, we're going to talk about an ending. Here's something <laughs> from Reuters. Rapper Nicki Minaj took fans by surprise with an announcement that she was retiring from the music business to have my family. Wow, Nikki, 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 Nikki. Well, this is very interesting because, you know, she's constantly being compared with Cardi B, who is kind of dominating everything and had a baby, has a family, and is really shining. And Nikki and her are always being put up against each other. So what's surprising here is that, like, and if this is a competition, then all the misogynistic comments we're going to see rolling out is, how can Cardi uh, B have a family and Nikki can't and do a job? And that's not okay to say. But surprising, because she's yeah. so young. Well, I also, I just hate that, that of course, the, the first point of comparison is going to be another woman mm-hmm. in, you know, the same line of work, who there are some parallels. Um, but I have to say that uh, some of us are questioning the sincerity yes. of this announcement, just because (laughs) one might wonder why she is suddenly retiring. Um, I think some of the speculation was around uh, Lizzo actually Mm -hmm. uh, going number one, Mm -hmm. and Nikki not Not going going number number one. one. I mean, we found out this week when Lizzo went number one, there have been six black women who have gone number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in the past decade or two. Only six. It's insane. Uh, And Nikki's not one of them. And you know, Nikki is one of the most famous musicians period, in the world. But there's, for some reason, she does not chart in the ways that, like, a, I almost said Ciara. This girl, you don't chart. Sorry. <laughs> I meant Cardi B. <laughs> Very different. So, you know, Nikki, we'll see. But I would like to see you stay. Yeah. Your fans should be nicer, though. Sometimes they can, barbs, you're very, don't hate me for that, but I'd like to see Nikki here. One of the other things I was wondering is, like, I feel like when people decide to retire from anything early, it's like a decision that just at that point that is, you know, because mm-hmm. of things that are going on in their life and that, like, you get bored after a while and you yeah. decide to go back to work. Yeah. Um, also this morning in our production meeting, uh, people were raising questions about whether or not she actually has a contract where she has to continue making music. Ooh. And her, so, her, the studios are like, girl, what job are you quitting? Not this one. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, that, that came up in our conversation. So, yeah. so well, knows. we're going to find out. Well, let's take it to the timeline. Do you think Nikki is actually leaving the rap game? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. Now, as journalists and public figures, it's not unusual to hear from sources or even PR people, even over DM on social media, but what if they DM'd your mom? Ooh, sorry, I'm just thinking about that one. <laughs> well, here's a tweet from Molly Jung Fast. So, Marion Williamson DM'd my mom to complain about me, and I have receipts. Molly's mom happens to be the feminist writer, Erica Jung. In a picture of the messages, Williamson wrote, Sorry to see you call me weird, Erica. I understand your daughter is young and doesn't know better, but given your own career and the fact we've met, I would have thought you'd at least be open to a non-corporate political voice in the mix. Molly is here to walk us through this exchange. Good morning. Hi. All right, I gotta know, what happened when you found out that Marianne Williamson DM'd your mom to complain about you? (laughs) It was so funny because my mom came over for lunch and she was like, you know, Marianne Williamson wrote to me and... (laughs) I don't remember meeting her, but I guess I did. And she's not happy with all the stuff. I had actually, I've written a bunch of articles about her because she's such an incredible character. I mean, I don't think she's a, I think she's a dangerous and 
bad, problematic character for the Democratic Party, but she's also just fascinating. And so I'd written a bunch of pieces about her, but I think it actually was a tweet that got her upset, which is this weird phenomenon that happens. Uh, I think it was the tweet about praying away the hurricane that got her mad. And mm. why do you think she's so mad about that tweet? Because she also lashed out at other people like Yashar about just quoting her in a thing that she actually said. So why is she getting angry about her own quotes? You know, what's interesting about her is she's ultimately, even though she dresses it up in a totally different way, she's very similar to Trump. She has a sort of demigod thing that she does. And she just is a, she's a lot like Trump. She has a sort, she dresses herself up as a liberal but ultimately, it's sort of a cult of personality exactly the same way. So I would say, I don't know what, you know, that that tweet sort of showed, you know, the the, the imposition, the implication there was that you could pray away a hurricane and that the people in the Bahamas weren't praying hard enough, which is A, insane, B, totally wrong, and C, it, it places a kind of blame on the victims, which is, you know... In, I mean, I don't want to say insane again, but insane. So uh, it's an interesting, I, I don't quite know why she, you know, why she decided to do that tweet. But I think the wheels have sort of come off for her. I think what's interesting about her is that it's almost like Twitter has ma- has sort of driven her nuts. Mm. <laughs> well, it reminded me of, uh, we had Williamson on the show. Yeah. And, and one of the things we asked her about was a tweet about swine flu that mm-hmm. um, implied that you could pray away the swine flu. Right. Um, do you have a sense that more people are now getting keyed into some of the kind of outlier views she has on these things? I mean, the sca- there are a lot, there have been a bunch of really smart pieces written about all the scary stuff she believes in. Like she's in, she's really an anti-vaxxer. She said she isn't, but she really is. And she's, she's had, a, she's done a lot of like, she has a lot of really scary views and the vaccine stuff, you know, as you guys know, is so dangerous because, you know, now we have measles coming back. We have mumps. I mean, people are going to die from this kooky. So, you know, the anti-science stuff, I think more than ever, especially in the time of Trump, it's really important for us to not give this anti-science stuff a voice uh, because it's so dangerous. Mm, for, for sure. You know, we really do need to lean into facts here, and that is vaccine works. <laughs> but, you know, moving past facts, Twitter has become the place for politicians to really act up lately. I mean, beyond Donald Trump, we've seen a lot yeah. of uh, instances lately. What do you think about this new era of politicians sliding into DMs and getting really personal with people um, in their own timelines, I guess? <laughs> I mean, in some ways... It's good because they're listening to people and they're engaging. And, and I think that's good. And I always think that any kind of dialogue for political candidates is good. I, I think what's, you know, it's this culture. The problem, I think, is this culture of you did something I don't like, so I'm going to get back at you, which really Trump started. Or I don't know if he started, but it, it's been going on for a while. But the idea that the media is, you know, when you don't like the news, you can change it by fighting with the media. And that he's done with the Sharpie thing is a great example of that. You know, he drew a Sharpie around, you know, the Perkin wasn't coming to Alabama, but he just couldn't, the truth just, he just couldn't accept the truth. And so I think the idea of be, of fighting with the truth and, and complaining to the manager when you don't like the truth is pretty dangerous. One question I have and something that strikes me as so strange is, don't these people realize you can take screenshots of their messages? <laughs> and if they're not saying this is like explicitly off the record, paging like, Brett Stevens. Okay. Page I mean, Brett. yes, like, like I mean, kids. Yeah, it, this is. It, it, I mean, I I said to my mom, you know, I'm gonna have to take screenshots of this, and she, you could see she was sort of like, mm, I don't know, she's gonna get mad at me. And I said, Mom, it's fundamentally this person is a really bad for the Democratic Party. But B, I said, this is insane. This is like the most insane thing I've ever seen. I have to document this. And the joke is my mom couldn't figure out how to take a (laughs) screenshot. So I had to go over there and take pictures of her phone. I mean, you made it work. You made it work. (laughs) Um, Have you heard from Williamson since all of this happened? No. And, and, you know, I I don't think if if she's smart, she'll let this one go because it's not going to help her. I mean... Uh, you know, it, you can't, it, it's this fundamental idea that you can't just complain about the truth. Mm. Mm. 
Well, Molly, it is always so fun talking so to you. So good to see you, Molly. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> I just, you know, we... I just don't, I just, you know, we, the screenshots. I, I just, just want to say, it's kind of, it's, I don't know. She did similar to us. It's funny to see it come full circle. People don't learn, but let's move on. Okay. <laughs> Here's a tweet from Molly Hensley and Kelancy. Jewel is sharing customer information, names, email addresses, and phone numbers with a Washington PR firm that specializes in grassroots political messaging for business clients. And here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News reporter and resident Jewel expert, Katie Natopoulos. I went from non-smoker to Jewel fiend, which makes me not a good candidate for their PR firm, which is calling their web store customers to ask to participate in lobbying New York State. Joining us now to discuss is Katie. Good morning. Hello. Hello, our resident Jewel expert. (laughs) So Katie, let's just back into that one right Mm -hmm. there. You have never been a smoker, but what made you a jeweler? Well, you know, uh, I knew it was cool with the teens, and as a 38-year-old mom, I wanted to do what was cool with the teens. Um, so I, I bought a jewel, and I started jeweling. Um, and uh, as, if you've ever tried it, jeweling rules, um, because nicotine feels really good. Um, and <laughs> unlike smoking cigarettes, which are, like, gross and, like— you can't, they're sort of expensive and you can't smoke them in your house and you're like, your clothes stink if you smoke them. Um, you can do it like in your apartment, you can do it in your car, it's great. You don't have to, unlike a cigarette that takes like a, a whole, you know, five minutes to smoke, you just take like one little puff. It's great, it's amazing. <laughs> Jewels are amazing, no wonder they are so popular. You're you know, evangelizing I actually, Jewels. I know, I know, but I, it actually really helps me understand, because like, I'm always like, what is it that is that people feel when they yeah. experience a jewel? So I, it, that actually makes a lot of sense. Have, but you've not jeweled? No. You gotta try, no. <laughs> I feel peer pressure now. And we're not like, doing this because our parents jeweling. watch. I just have not jeweled. <laughs> no, I, I, I have really done other things. Things, but I have not jeweled. Yeah, not the jeweling. <laughs> but uh, look, yeah. I'm not alone. I know a lot of other adults who went from non-smoker to jeweler or went from like very occasional social smoker, maybe would bum a cigarette from friends at a bar, that kind of thing, to like jewel addict. There are people in our office right now who fit that you know, description completely. I like sort of this, uh, these mysterious, <laughs> these mysterious individuals mm, who are addicted. We will to out you. Well, on, on a more serious mm. note, what is Jewel doing with uh, data, um, and why are they using a political PR firm? Um, so I, I got because I had ordered the mango flavored pods uh, off the Jewel yes. website because uh, the flavored pods are no longer sold in retail stores um, due to their popularity with teenagers. Um, so I was a customer. I got a, a phone call and an email uh, from someone from a PR firm that is a political PR firm based out of DC, saying, "Hi, like I'm a, I, we were contracted by Jewel Labs to reach out to New Yorkers who Jewel because we're looking for success stories about people who switched from cigarettes to using Jewel because ostensibly it is safer to Jewel than to smoke cigarettes." Um, and you know, the thing that struck me as completely weird about this was that I, as far as I remember, I never remembered, you know, saying it's okay to give out my phone number and email address to a PR firm um, to have someone call me. I had no indication of what other data they had about me. What, you know, do they know what flavor pods I buy? Um, how often? Um, so there was a lot of sort of questions I had about like, how did my user data get passed over to this PR firm? This is, you know, it's not unheard of but it's pretty strange. It does appear quite strange, especially because now you, a reporter, mm-hmm. at a pretty big outlet, are now getting uh, pinged on the fact that they're taking this data. But, you know, data and smoker product or consumer data is very widely known and widely talked about. Mm-hmm. But how does Juul data compare to smoking data in the tobacco industry itself? So one of the weird things about smoking is that traditionally smokers have purchased their cigarettes at, like, a gas station, a convenience store, like, the the you know the tobacco companies wouldn't necessarily have your name and address, but they would go to like weird lengths to actually get that user data because user data is so important to marketing your product. So like for example, the Camel Cash and the Marlboro you know denim jackets that people used to get. I think they stopped all those programs, but like all those knickknacks that you would sign up and collect the points from the you know sticker at the bottom of the pack and mail it in for something. That was an attempt to collect user data back you know before the internet. Um, so this is just sort of a more modern way of doing it. And it's also a lot easier, obviously. You don't need to print up Joe Camel 
denim jackets. <laughs> yeah. Are there specific obstacles that Jewel faces when they're trying to go to the market? Um, I mean, they don't face obstacles in making a delightful product that people <laughs> want to purchase over and over and over again and tell their friends about. And <laughs> so, uh, but the main problem is that obviously it is extremely bad that teens are getting addicted to Juul. Teens who started not smoking cigarettes at all are just going straight to Juul um, because of the flavors, because of the ease of Juuling that I described earlier. Um, it's really appealing to young people. Um, and so they're facing pushback from a lot of local governments, state governments, city governments uh, that are trying to either outright ban or limit the sale of Juul. Hmm. So they are aggressively trying to, you know, do these lobbying campaigns, do these grassroots campaigns to stop New York State, uh, the city of San Francisco. Uh, you know, I think Michigan just banned all flavored jewels. Um, so you can only buy the disgusting tobacco flavor. Um, don't get the tobacco flavor. <laughs> Jewelling, just honestly, like, no one should jewel. I don't endorse jewel. Um, do not do it, do not start it. Um, but so they have, you know, they have a reason to want to use these political uh, PR firms to, you know, lobby the public, lobby the governments. Mm. And my final question today, is Juul actually just a gateway to smoking? Because it feels like people are now thinking about smoking when we saw it kind of decreasing for teens for a while. It's, I, you know, I, I'm sure there is better data out there than I have off the top of my head. My instinct is that, like, not necessarily. The people that I know are, I think the dangers are, uh, you increase your nicotine dosage. Um, I know someone here at the office who went from, he was an adult smoker. He smoked about half a pack a day. Um, he switched to Juul because he wanted to, you know, not be smoking cigarettes anymore. And now he's smoking the equivalent to two packs a day. Um, and he actually smokes, he puffs down the front of his shirt at the office. I will not tell you who this is. Um, wow. All like, so the tea on the jewel addicts <laughs> in here in this newsroom. Wow. Yeah, but it has a really high nicotine percentage, which makes it way more addictive than, you know, you know, and it's because of the convenience and because of the delicious, delicious flavors. <laughs> um, and for the record, I quit jeweling. I was like, this is, I gotta stop. Uh, gotta stop. Uh, wow. But, yeah, I don't feel like, kids. I feel like uh, psychologically, you've now planted some seeds that Zach and I are going to be sitting at our desk. <laughs> like you're going to see us. Yeah, like hyped on Jewel. Oh my gosh. Oh well, my Katie, goodness. thank you for joining us. Um, thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, the Jewel, 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 Jewel. What well, a time to be alive. I, also, if you all did not notice, Katie was wearing Jewel earrings. Just so you go back, screenshot, zoom in. Her earrings are jewels. So jewels. There you Actual go. jewels. Actual yes. jewels. Oh, there we go. <laughs> We got it. Look at that. Wow. Happy New York Fashion Week, everyone. (laughs) Well, later on in the show, the star of the new sitcom, Bob Hart's Agushola, is here. But up next, it's Fire Tweets. Zach is now jeweling. Jeweling. I'm joking. Jeweling. An invisible jewel. I'm not jeweling, mom. Don't freak out. It's called jewel. You don't smoke. Clearly, you don't smoke a jewel. You jewel a jewel. You jewel a jewel. It's a jewel. That's the it's verb. It's a verb and a noun. I don't know. See, we really don't She's know anything about She's a versatile queen. This. I, I know, love it. I know, I love but like, it. we don't really, we really aren't, we don't know. And the downside of jewels is that you don't get fire like these tweets, sadly. Mm. It's the truth. <laughs> Amber, you tweeted. Coworker, I don't know how I'm going to get home. Me. Damn, that sucks. <laughs> I'm not driving you home. God, the LA mood constantly. Oh, you live across the 405 star, girl. I don't go that way. Too bad. Ooh, ooh. All right. Well, lovable nerd, you treat it. Ladies, if he, one, disappears once a month, goes through phases, makes you feel crazy, is drifting away, has a dark side, controls the tides, that's not your boyfriend. It's the moon. <laughs> Thanks for that clarity. Oh, that was a deep rumble. Oh my God, I love that. I think that was like actually the tide. That was the tide? Was that, was that what that sounded like? That was romantic. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. Love that. Justin, you tweeted, fall begins in New York when all the therapists come back. <laughs> and I agree. Wait. I heard a story the other day. Do tell. That someone, I don't know if this was true or not, but someone was on Fire Island, an island right off of New York, uh, that people vacation on the weekends, and they got in a fight with their partner and they ran into their therapist on the boardwalk and had a session. That sounds very back. convenient. <laughs> do you have to, do you like pay your therapist in cash in that moment? I don't know what happened. You're like, you're, or vodka. You're like, here's Or vodka. Menu. The poor therapist is like trying to enjoy their vacation and, and like, they're like, I had to see these two out here. But this is a very New York thing. Yeah. It, it is. It Gosh. is. Well, Johnny, Johnny, Johnny's son, you tweeted. What I thought adulthood would be like 
Wow, what a great day. My back doesn't hurt. Having a perfectly normal day where my back doesn't hurt. Just another day of my back not hurting. What adulthood is actually like. Maybe if I lie on this floor for 11 hours, I can escape this pain. It's a, a hard, cold reality that your back does hurt. Oh, mine definitely you, hurts these days. It does? Yes, from, from CrossFit, everyone. Don't everyone freak I mean, out. You're, that's like a very hard workout. That doesn't seem as age-related. But I'm also getting, I'm, she's, she's aging. She's she is, becoming a fine woman. Gracefully, gracefully. Thank you. Yes. Look, nice. No, look, I can say nice she things. She can be nice. <laughs> look at this. All right, ready for the shoot of the day? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Everyday men leave their homes with no bag, no water bottle, no lip balm, no hand sanitizer, no extra layer in case they get cold, just keys and a wallet shoved into their pocket. Chaotic and reckless. I would like to make a editor's note here. Yes, please. These are straight men, not gay men. Yeah, I have they... a lot of bags and baggage. This se- this seems like a heterosexual culture. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know? heteros. <laughs> Blaming it on the heteros, crazy. But world. how do you leave with so few things? Like I have a whole bag that pretty Don't much. Don't you feel nervous? I, I yes, exactly. Like, like I could get stranded and be fine for days because yeah. I have everything. Even basic down to like an umbrella. How you, it starts raining, what you gonna do, girl? Get wet, sugar melts. These Remember bags that. don't leave the house without an umbrella, you know. <laughs> So, Thank it's God. a whole thing. Because <laughs> that would be... Yeah. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Up next, Alex is talking to the executive producer and director of The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance on Netflix. Here's the tweet from io9 writer James Whitbrook. I can now say that I've seen the first five episodes of The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance, and it might be my favorite TV show of the year. I'm here with Lisa Henson and Louis Leterrier, the executive producer and director of The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance on Netflix. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, so when I first saw the 1982 version, I was, I think, equal parts um, terrified and also riveted. Um, So Lisa, just to get us started, um, how does the original film connect now to the series? Well, the series is a prequel. So we're backed up, you know, some time before the events of the movie. And in our our world, it's a much more colorful populace thriving world because the Skeksis haven't really shown their true nature yet. And, you know, Skeksis are great villains. They're probably some of the best villains ever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they really, but the, but the Gelfling, who are the leads, they don't really yet know how terrible and truly evil the Skeksis are. So, you know, that's one of the things that's exciting about the prequel story is that, you know, it's kind of allowing this whole thing to unfold and the Gelfling have to organize and kind of create unity amongst themselves in order to have a resistance against the Skeksis. And of course, uh, as you said, all of these are puppets uh, in this new series. Um, Louis, what was it like filming with puppets instead of CGI? And instead of actors. (laughs) And instead of, for you, yes, instead of actors. Well, it's a mix of everything. It's interesting. It's a completely different technique and, and really it's an art. It's an ancient art. You know, it's been done for, for millennia. The idea was, for me, was, was to make it feel the same. You know, I've always said that. Like, our goal, my goal, Lisa's goal, is to have the audience forget you're watching puppets and you're just watching characters. Like, you mm. would watch actors or, you know, CGI, uh, CGI or, you know, cartoons, anything. It's, a, it's really something different. The, the trick was to do it on such a vast palette, tell an immense story. It's really an adventure. There's action scenes galore, there's drama, there's love, you know, there's humor. And and how do you do this with something that in the morning is completely inanim- inanimate <laughs> in a box or on a stand? Yeah. Um, one of the things that was also really fascinating is uh, the cast and some of the voices we get to hear. Um, Taryn Edgerton, Nathaniel, Natalie uh, Emanuel, Mark Hamill, Helena Bonham Carter, Aquafina, Sigourney Weaver. Um, how did you put together such an amazing collection of people? Uh, we just uh, put like a little, uh, you know, <laughs> announcement, and then they all showed up. It became kind of a snowball. Taryn yeah. Edgerton amongst the Gelflings came in really early, and Andy Samberg amongst the Skeksis also came in really early. And I kind of think having that like stamp of approval hmm. from you know from each of them, it just became a snowball. And at a certain point, nobody said no. Hmm. So even small roles in the show are voiced by really big performers. And you know, it was it also made us feel great that so many so many of those famous actors like took the time to do it. And I think it's because they love the Dark Crystal, and you know, they kind of really wanted to endorse this big puppet project. It is no one had seen anything. All the actors signed on to the project without seeing a single image from the... We send them packages, but, you know, and maybe the idea and the story. But really, it's about... It's because 
of Jim Henson. It's mm. because of the original movie. It's the love that everybody has in America, but like all around the world uh, for Jim Henson. We grow up. We grow up watching Jim Henson programs. Mm-hmm. You know, from you know Sesame Street to The Muppets to you know Fraggle Rock, all around the world. So all these people signed up because they wanted to be part of this legacy. Hmm. Um, and you kind of mentioned the emotional connection there. Um, something that I was struck by is that uh, the series and also the film kind of hit on some larger themes. Lisa, was that something you were thinking about when you were thinking about putting together a 2019 iteration? Well, it's kind of, it's just something that's inherent to fantasy is it allows you to have sort of big metaphors played out. And, you know, there's a lot of darkness in the world of the Dark Crystal. There yeah. is actually a sort of creeping thing that we actually call the darkening that's affecting the world. It's, it's uh, deeply threatening their environment as well as, as the Gelflings themselves. And it's how people respond to that, that fear and that darkness that actually makes them heroes. So, you know, it's quite a heroic story. And I think maybe something fun for like the younger people in the audience to help process like the darkness of our world that, you know, you could be heroic, you could stand up, you could say something, you know, it, it feels relevant. It's mm. not like we were trying really hard to make a metaphor, but it, it, it you know, everybody who sees the show says that it has that relevant feeling. Mm. Well, you mentioned um, the darkness in Louis, the original Dark Crystal also was part of a wave of 80s and 90s movies that were like profoundly scary <laughs> to young people. Um, do you think it's important for, for kids to have to grapple with some of those real feelings? Absolutely. No, I mean, you know, uh, uh, there are famous books written about it and, you know, entirely you know, the philosophical theories about, about that idea. That was my experience as a, as a young man, as a child, growing up, seeing extremely scary uh, films and talking to them with my parents, not you know, mm-hmm. keeping everything balled up inside, having this conversation. That's also what we wanted to do uh, with Lisa and Netflix, is to really creating, really create a, a family fair, something mm-hmm. that we all watch together. I'm a f- father of many kids. We go see... All different ages. All different ages. <laughs> and <laughs> rarely do I go see a movie for myself. But yeah. when I go see a movie for the family, I want to be entertained myself. I want the kids to be entertained. I want to look at their face when something quite jarring happens. And then I want to have a conversation with them. So really, this is a show that everybody should be watching alone if they want, but definitely with their family and then having a conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, I would imagine, um, you know, part of the big appeal is also just seeing, uh, it's a Henson project, right? Like people just want to see what kind of creatures and what kind of craftsmanship we're going to get to see with everything. And Lisa, you are now the CEO of the Henson Company. How are you keeping your dad's legacy alive? Well, in many ways, but I think probably the thing that people most appreciate is that we keep doing puppetry and that we keep the puppet building techniques as well as the puppeteering techniques going. And the main way we keep it going is just by staying in production, you know, whether it's on something huge like Dark Crystal or on smaller puppet productions, you know, we are still the main puppet production company. And, you know, I think it's also great with so many CG projects where the CG looks so, it's kind of seamless, it's perfect in a way, um, but doesn't have the the handmade quality or the textural beauty of the puppets. Mm. And, you know, so in some ways what we do is really completely different from animation. It all comes from uh, the artistry of individual puppeteers or individual puppet builders. And it's incredibly collaborative art form. So, you know, there's just the art, the artwork of so many people is on screen in this show, and I think when people see it, it's so it's it's a deep, it's a rich, rich experience because you can actually you almost feel like you can plunge into mm-hmm. all that all that art and and makery stuff. Mm-hmm. And and puppetry is not stuck in time. It's not some. It's not an art that is your f- grandparents' art that you go see. Oh, another puppet show. <laughs> 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 it's and you know the Hanson Creature Shop are reinventing techniques uh, of puppetry, and you'll see in this show we have all together created stuff that's a lot of stuff that had never been done before. And what's exciting for me is when people come to me and say, "How did you do this? It's yeah. it's obviously real, but how?" Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I have to say, you know, one of the treats of getting to watch this is that uh, with so much CGI and animation, you know, you really do feel immersed in that world. So I hope that all of our viewers check it out. And thank you both so much Please for Please check it out. You. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Check it out. Uh, and kids, watch it with your parents. It's a little scary. <laughs> <laughs> that is the perfect disclaimer to end this on. <laughs> okay. All 10 episodes of The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance are streaming on Netflix now. Up next, more Am to DM. This is from A to Z. Alex Whitcomb tweeted, Get ready, U.S. Singles. The company that sold all of your data and services, old pictures of your ex all the time, would now like to help you find love. That would be Facebook dating. (laughs) And here's a tweet from Aaron Ryan. Facebook dating already exists, and it's called being unhappily married for 15 years and one day, half in the back, looking up the guy who who you went to prom with, striking up a conversation, and six months later, giving him a blowjob and an Applebee's parking. <laughs> Hasn't Facebook already wrought enough damage in our lives and democracy? I love that you grab this company thinks like, oh girl, we just leaked all your data to everyone and now we want to make you find a man? Like, no. no that man already no, found me. You. He found my credit card information and I sued him. Thank you. That was the, the first thing that came to mind. I was like, oh great. Exactly what we need to do is mm-hmm. give Facebook more personal data Ugh. so that it will end up only, you know, who knows where it could possibly go. God, we know where it's going to go this next election. <laughs> <laughs> Or also that. <laughs> but you know, I think we could have a, I think there's a bigger conversation here about like how dating is becoming so digital and like what we want those spaces to be like. Because this new Facebook tool, like we're already kind of using it to be a dating thing. Yeah. But now that we're making it an intentional dating space, it tells us a lot that like people maybe want to consider like being their whole selves in these digital spaces because girl, when I was using Tinder, that was a version of me that was not real. <laughs> but I think that actually there's a reason why we give a version of ourselves Uh on these kinds of apps and also just on the first couple of dates Mm -hmm. because you do want to present your best self, right? Like that's that's very intentional is that you want to be as attractive as you possibly can. Um, You don't want to present any red flags to Mm -hmm. someone. And what's funny about this Facebook thing is that they're saying that their profiles can be more authentic and yeah. present a more fuller version of yourself. Which is insanity. Because, like, I, you know, every, folks here watching know that I used to work for Grindr. Um, and Grindr is one of the most popular geosocial companies for hooking up and dating in the world. And while Grindr was designed to mostly be, like, an ephemeral thing, like, oh, hey, let's go in this bush type of thing, um, it has become the fuel to queer marriages for a, a lot of cisgender mm-hmm. men. And the reason why is because people go into these situations being like, oh, we're just not going to—it's going to be ephemeral. It's going to be real quick. But because they have such low expectations, they meet someone and they're like, oh, hey, you like James Baldwin? I love James Baldwin, and I enjoyed the sexual moment with you. Let's try this more. We're OkCupid or Facebook dating. You're like, okay, they went to this school. They must be like this. They're this high. Their mother's really pretty. All these things. And you meet them, and you're like, you're not what you look like online. And it fails. So I think like Facebook dating isn't going to be actually that successful. Yeah, well, one of the other things, too, is that they're saying it'll be easier to meet people that you're in uh, physical proximity Mm -hmm. of. And I'm like... (laughs) Grinder, <laughs> also like congratulations on having such an original idea. Right. We'll um, mark. <laughs> but again, it just to me it, it speaks to like just all of the data that has already mm-hmm. been breached, and now they're going to know exactly where you are, what your interests are, um, romantically. And then there's a secret crush feature. Which wait, there's a secret crush. There feature. is a secret crush where you can Lord give a list mercy. of your secret crushes I- on Facebook. Who who amongst us is going to trust this? Because I feel like if you make a secret crush list on Facebook, we're all going to know by the end of the year. Wait, who you your can create a list are. of people you have a crush I, on? Yeah, yeah. They, That's just they called Instagram. I follow you. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about. We don't need this. Yeah. And Facebook owns Instagram. See, this is redundant. This is why I don't like it. Yeah. Use Instagram. It's magical. The DMs are lit and cute. And you have a plethora of photos. It's fun. And then if you don't believe that's how they look, check their Instagram stories. That's live Isn't in charge. Instagram owned by Facebook. Yes, that's, that's what I'm saying. Facebook's yeah. just okay. wasting resources. All yeah. right, well, I want to know, do you have any reservations about using Facebook dating? Tweet us using the hashtag AM2 Privacy Breach. Because that's what. Also, who am know? I kidding? I'm totally signing up. All right, coming up, I'm sitting down with Daniel Francesi, Matteo Lane, and Nikki Paris. Stay tuned. Nellie Bell, you tweeted... Just watched the trailer for Bob Hart's Abishola twice. This show looks so good, can't wait for it to start. Today, I'm joined by one of the stars of Bob Hart's Abishola, actor Falake Olofoyeku. Welcome. Thank you. I gotta say, like, this suit, a look today. Thank you. This is Rag and Bone, and my stylist, Toye Aridikwe, put it together. Knocked it out of the park. Yeah, always does. Yeah, well, I do want to talk to you about the show. Um, You've been in many projects, but this feels like such a big breakthrough. How did it feel when you got the news that you were cast in this? 
I think it's all still sinking in. I know that sounds yeah. a tad bit cliche, right? Um, it's it's slowly. I'm sl- I'm proce- I'm processing through it slowly. Right now, I'm focused on the work and making sure we have a great project, um, a great character, a great show, and then doing the press for it, making sure everyone's watching. And um, I think after that, I'll take a break and sit back and appreciate everything. But it's an exciting time. Mm -hmm. It's exciting. It's a dream come true. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, for those who might not be familiar, um, in the show, you play a Nigerian immigrant who is a nurse um, who takes care of a guy named Bob who happens to be white. He has a heart attack. And then he completely falls for your character. When you got the script, what did you make of their dynamic? When I got the script, well, when I got the audition. Mm -hmm. So first I got sides. I didn't get the entire script. And... I didn't, we go through, actors, we go through a lot of auditions. So my process is not to harbor too much on the bigger picture, but just focus on the character and the work Mm. at hand. And so I just focus on that and how to stay true to her and her situation. Um, And I just, yeah, I just focus on that. But when I got the script... And I started talking to people and we started doing press uh, and people were seeing the pilot. It started to dawn on me that there was a huge significance to Mm. this. This is the first time uh, a Nigerian immigrant is being portrayed in this manner and uh, as a focal point. And I thought that was amazing. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's amazing. Do you think because of that timeliness, you know, right now, immigration being such a, uh, you know, a hot point in American politics, um, does it feel like this role is now imbued with even more significance because of the political moment we're in? Yes, I, I, I do think so. But at the same time, it's, it's not, that's not the, its intention. Uh, I think it's intended to show that we are all alike, uh, wherever you're from, your background. Um, and it's also still a feel-good movie, a feel-good show. And um, yeah, but there is a political significance um, in the current climate, but that's not the focus. It's still a feel-good comedy. It's a sitcom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's chasing after her with the socks, you know, Uh, the sock salesman. (laughs) that's That's what you know now. Wait for episode two. Yeah, that's what I know now. <laughs> yeah. uh, got, gotta stay tuned. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I was uh, struck by in the first episode is that the show seems to overtly address the tension between um, the African immigrant community and also African Americans. Will we see more of that as the series progresses? Oh, yes, you will. Yeah. Yes, you will. It was a question I got asked um, a couple of months ago as well. Um, yeah, so we do address it. I, I think they've been very thorough in... Um, exploring all the different avenues that an immigrant would be exposed to. Um, and um, I don't know that we provide all the answers, hmm. but we definitely are starting conversations hmm. with this. What kind of conversations do you hope that, that people start talking about? I hope people start talking more about love hmm. in general, not like the romantic kind necessarily, but the agape all-encompassing all love. Mm-hmm. Um, were you able to have a lot of input around this character, and were there any personal experiences you felt like you were bringing to the set with you, like when there would be conversations about what was happening or what you wanted to portray in the show? Of course. Uh, the character herself, there are a lot of mannerisms with, um, from my mom, from my aunties that I, I embed into, into her. Um, uh, in terms of input with the creation of the character, um, I don't think I, I, I'm needed because there's such masterminds from Chuck Lorre to Gina, Yashere. We have a great writing team. But every now and then we get, I get the, how would you say this in Nigeria? What's the proper mm-hmm. way? How, like what your about word would you use for this? And also when we're on set and we're going through our lines and stuff, um, if there's a sentence that doesn't quite sound Nigerian enough mm-hmm. um, or the intonation is a bit different, I switch it up and they always open. You always mentioned open to that. Well, you mentioned Gina, who yes. is an executive producer and yeah. also writing the show. Um, why, you know, does having someone who behind the scenes also uh, bring more to making it a more authentic portrayal? Of course, yeah. of course. And I think, um, and Chuck, Al, Eddie, they all knew that. And that's why they brought her in. Um, not only that, but we have quite, we have, I think, two or three women of African descent on the writing team as well. Yeah. Apart from Gina. Yeah. But yeah, Gina definitely gives it an authentic voice because a lot of it is based on her life experience. Yeah. yeah. What do you make of, like, uh, it seems like a lot of the kind of questions you're getting are about your own background and bringing that to the character. What do you make of that conversation happening around the show? 
I think it's great. Yeah. I think people are genu- genuinely inquisitive. Sometimes all my accents come out at the same time. <laughs> um, they're genuinely inquisitive, and um, I, I don't see any harm in that. I'm happy to answer them. Yeah. Questions. It seems like a cool moment where there are Nigerian artists who are also making waves in pop culture. Um, I was thinking about... Um, you know, some musicians in particular, uh, Burna Boy and Tua Savage, um, who most recently were featured on um, Beyonce's Lion King yes. soundtrack. Have you been following their music? Because you also, you're also a musician, right? I, I am a musician. I, that is my love. Mm. Music is my love. So I, I am I'm constantly working on music. Um, yeah, the, the artists in Nigeria have been doing great things. Um, not only on the Beyonce album, there are tons, tons of other musicians in Nigeria that are, just spectacular. Um, yeah, if you want me to name a bunch, I I, know, I mean, I want to hear it. You, you okay. sound, I, I'd love uh, to, yeah. I, I think my favorite right now are Tenny. Tenny's doing great work. Uh, Kiss Daniel, all his, all his songs, all his masterpieces, mm. I think. Uh, who else am I listening to out there? Um, Kiss Daniel, Tenny, uh, I come on the spot now, but... <laughs> I like Brimo, I like um, Adekunle Gold, I like Simi, I like uh, Asha. Asha was a classic. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm waiting for her next album. Um, obviously, this fella, if we're going to go retro, King Sonny mm-hmm. Adi, the classics, uh, Benny Sha- um, Shalawa, Benny. I can go on and on. I can go on and on. We'll have to have you back to talk about music specifically. My favorite, I would love to do that. Okay, cool. And like, do like a play a playlist or something like that? Please, yeah. That would that. be so much fun. Yeah. I want to ask you one more question because something that uh, we noticed from your Instagram account is that you are good friends with Black Panther actor Winston Duke. Um, <laughs> do you get any like insider information about the, the movie sequel? Oh, no. That's, I don't even want to know. You don't even want to know. I want you to, to be keep surprised. it a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, I think when he was shooting uh, Black Panther, I was like, don't tell me anything. Don't tell me anything. I'm a huge sci-fi geek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus, plus he wouldn't. He's really good about that. Mm. I, I feel like I would be like, give me all the spoilers I want to know. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Bob Hart's Abishola premieres on Monday, September 23rd on CBS. Up next, Zach is talking about The House of Glenn Coco. RuPaul's DragCon is this weekend, and I am joined today by a few comedians that will be taking the stage and bringing the laughs. Daniel Francesi, Nikki Paris, and Matteo Lane. Hey, ciao, buongiorno. <laughs> buongiorno. We're all Italian. Happy three Friday. Gay Italians. Yeah. Oh my God. Three gay Italians. <laughs> yeah. All wow. sausage, no peppers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Benvenuto. I like how you're like DragCon, and there's not one drag queen here. There's yeah. like a man out, and it's just three Italians being like, just we make sorry, sauce. Y'all. We're talking and about a, tortellini in the green room. And a reminder, everyone watching Sizzle, G, our resident drag queen, is at DragCon right now filming, so we will have coverage from there too. But we have three Italian gay men, all quite handsome, all quite funny, and let's jump into why you're even at DragCon. So, you know, Daniel. <laughs> so That's rude. <laughs> so the house why the hell are you, there? Are you there? Well, you know, queer comedy is drag adjacent. Exactly. And I think that um, there's so many wonderful things at DragCon. Um, and uh, it's just like Burning Man or anything else. You go and you're experiencing it, and then you, you decide like what you want to contribute. Mm-hmm. So we were, it was missing stand-up, so mm-hmm. I brought the House of Glen Coco to DragCon. And why was it so important to create a safe space for comedy at DragCon? Is it, hate, is, is it a safe? I, don't I, know, I hate the word safe, safe space. space. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> anyone said it was a comedy, safe space. Like nobody's yeah. safe space, maybe? Really? Yeah. Um, I just think that... Have um, you been to a drag show? I've been, I've or been a comedy drag. show? Like, I've what been safe them. space? <laughs> we're meeting, you know... You might need a Xanax before. Really? I would say Spotlight. Spotlight. There you go. It's good to put a spotlight on a queer comedian. You know, a lot of times... Uh, uh, LGBTQ plus comedians end up being like the token queer on like one show or we get like the Corny Collins gay day like the one day a month like pushed like you know on a Tuesday at like 10.30 p.m. So I think it's time that um, you know now that the world is getting used to having us queer people around all the time for us to reclaim our pride and take some space. Thank I love taking up space and you know Nikki you have come up in the New York and LA scenes together. Um, What has been the big difference when doing shows in those two places when thinking of this safe space idea because we've been talking a lot about comedians this week like Dave Chappelle, Kevin Hart and you know while you know comedy shouldn't be sensitive we're starting to reconsider that and queer people have always been the butt of the jokes even on those stages. I mean, I think funny is funny 
And I think that comedy is, is, you could talk about anything you want in comedy, but I think that in terms of the LA and New York scene, I think that when I was coming up in New York, I had a lot of places that were like, you know, there was one club that wouldn't let me perform there because I was gay. They're like, we think you're great, but because of who you are, I can't say it. (laughs) (laughs) But that was really disappointing for me when I first started. And I felt like there was a lot more, you know, there's a lot more diversity in LA mm-hmm. in terms of gay comics. Well, I you know I work at the Comedy Cellar almost every night in New York, and it's maybe the most diverse comedy club that I can think of between uh, trans comics, gay comics, lesbian comics, straight comics, p- comics of color. Uh, I I don't know. I and it's so funny because when we were all talk like outside of the comedy world, everyone likes to talk about safe places and what you can say mm-hmm. and da da da. But when comics are alone and sitting together, it's we just it's all about the jokes. We just care about are you funny and do you make me laugh and do you work hard. That's mm-hmm. really it's a lot of comedy is about respect of your peers. It's not so much about the outside world. But there still needs to be so much more gay and LGBTQ representation in stand-up comedy because, like Danny said, there really is only like one gay comic on a lineup, oh. or there's like one or two. So yeah, it's that, still a rarity. We, rarely, uh, we haven't really had a gay man also like yeah. sell out Madison Square Garden. No, you know we've had like uh, lesbians who also s- sort of tend to identify more as masculine. I don't know why that that's like more like. Um, palatable for the public, but it's like there's so many different spectrums to the uh, LGBTQ rainbow. You know, we, I just want to showcase more and let people get to see what we do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, 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 <laughs> yeah. Hey! hey. Yes, get that Chef's out Chef's kiss. I agree. Je suis d'accord. So, Mateo, you asked me if I've been to a drag show, and while I have, I know that you've done a lot with drag. You know, yes. you've done a lot of red carpets with drag queens. Tell me about your experience entering the drag world. And well, so my passionate. best friends are Bob the Drag Queen and Monet Exchange. Ooh, just drop and, those names. Well, Bob filmed his special last night. I mm-hmm. opened for him, and it was amazing. And uh, he's an incredible comedian. Um, but yeah, so I sort of entered in the drag world just through my friends. I mean, I you know, and now it's like my my view of drag is so obscure because it's like, oh, everyone's one RuPaul's Drag Race. Like it's such a ridiculous concept. But um, through them, I've actually been able to go to lots of really fun drag shows in the city. Like my favorite is The Help on on Thursday nights at yeah. Therapy with Pixie Aventura and Keishikol. Um Yeah, so I don't know. They've introduced me into a world where, because I'm doing stand-up all the time, on the road, always with comics, 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 comics. It's nice to see other performances and realize how much similarities there are and how much differences there are. I love going to drag shows because I feel like I can just let loose and celebrate and have a great time. Mm, So at those drag shows, though, I know all of you go to them and have worked with queens. What is something you all want mainstream America to understand about drag that they're not getting from Drag Race? I'll tell you that uh, that gay clubs, queer clubs, are a safe space. Mm-hmm. I think for people to just go and be as gay as you want to be without like any uh, radical judgment. And I think that drag queens are like the ambassadors of those clubs. Like you can walk into, I, whenever I'm on the road doing comedy, I'll go to the gay club and I'll find the nearest queen, and I could probably get a free drink, find out about that boy that's across the dance floor. You know what I mean? Um, find out what's going on the rest of the yeah, week. Yeah, they're the gay bar whisperers. <laughs> yeah, they're the gay bar. They, they, they like shepherd you into party life. <laughs> the gay bar whisperers. Um, and I think that that's like a really important thing. Uh, what they do is monumentally important. And I'm friends with Rue. I think mm-hmm. Rue's wonderful. And what World of Wonder has done for a drag um, has just like changed the world. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm a you know wild liberty. I've been with them, doing things with them since Party Monster. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wanted to put a piece of me into into drag And in today's day and age, be who you want to be. Yeah. With every all the sadness going on in the world, you should be exactly who you want to be. I, I love that. I think that people are not realizing the sense of humor of drag queens. Like, you, a lot of times outside, of, people aren't able to always go at 4 a.m. to a drag bar mm-hmm. and experience that. And RuPaul's Drag Race is a great show, but it's also a competition. So it's focusing on a certain aspect of drag where the performance comes if you're lip-syncing for your life, where usually that's the part that you lead with. What is mm-hmm. your show? Who are you? What kind of act do you have? Mm-hmm. So I think the one thing that America is not seeing about drag is the sense of humor, uh, the performance aspect, what what they do, how they made their name, how they cut their teeth. And uh, yeah, not to repeat it, but sense of humor. People go to drag shows not to be like, let's talk about, no, we go to laugh. We mm-hmm. go to laugh and have a sense of humor and, and laugh at our misfortunes and, and what makes us great. And there's all different kinds of queens. I mean, they're like, they're all butterflies, but then they're all different species. You know, like, yeah. like you know, there's like fashion queens and pageant queens. Yeah. But the comedy queens specifically, I mean, you know, there's so many things from drag queens that the world has borrowed or appropriated. You know, um, 
Christina Aguilera. From, from, like, Grande. from like looks, you know, um, uh, to jokes. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been comedians that have like stolen drag queens jokes or, or even barred. Like, you know, Nina West did the famous uh, number where she was at a, dr- a live dress where the dancers came all out of the ruffles of her dress. And then Mariah and then did Sia it. Sia did it. No, Sia did it. And Mariah. You know, and Mariah? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, like, she was but good. then people don't know that where it came from, you know? Mm-hmm, yeah. So I think uh, things like DragCon are really incredible because you get to see uh, everything from like how they put on a lash to you know, um, their best numbers. And I think that that's, it's a really nice place for people to get together. And it's one of the most family-friendly um, LGBTQ Take events that kids. there is. Yeah. yeah, it's like really fun. I'm, me and uh, Nina West are going to be hosting the kids' drag pageant. Um, oh. Yeah, so there's like just so many awesome things that are going on there. And comedy, stand-up specifically, was missing. You know, so we have Pandora Box, who's like a, one that's of the legendary, legendary comedy legendary. queens joining us in the House of Glen Coco. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's like a place where we just try to be as diverse as possible mm-hmm. and as funny as possible. Can you imagine being kids and your parents taking you to compete in a drag Girl, show? That I would be everything. Ama- I was at home like listening to Madonna crying. Like I can't <laughs> imagine that world. We've come so far. We have, we have. And I could talk about this with you all day. So I want to say thank you so much for being here and good luck tomorrow. I think you're going to be fantastic if this was a preview. Um, thank you for having TV. us. Of course, of course. And you all can catch Daniel Francesi, oh, K.O. Lane, and Nikki Paris at RuPaul's Dragon, and Daniel Francesi and the House of Blue Coco tomorrow in New York City. Don't go away because up next, Alex and I are responding to your tweets. Oh, hi, y'all. Hi. I hope you enjoyed that little Italian and Zach Stafford moment. Ooh. Very handsome Ooh. Italian men all sharing Ooh. a couch with me. And it was all appropriate for TV. It was great. Yes. (laughs) Enjoyed it. It's Friday. They were fun. And we had a big old game for y'all. But, you know, we just had such a great conversation about drag, these ideas of safe space. And I hope you all took away is that even within our communities, we're having really intense conversations about what safe space means, who should have it, what should it look like, and all these things. So nothing is definable Mm -hmm. because it's queer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get into your tweets. Just E tweeted this following our conversation about Marion Williamson DMing Molly Jung Fast's mother. Molly didn't follow me back, so I think I'll message her mother. (laughs) Do it. It's also just like a new level of petty when you seek out someone's parent who is a grown-ass person to complain about them. Yeah, y'all don't get into my mother's DMs, please God. Just DM me and complain about me to my face. Right? I'm right here. I'm an at away. Thank you. Yeah, there you go. Jolene tweeted this following my conversation with the executive producer and director of The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance. I have to say, I only saw the first episode of The Dark Crystal so far, but it's probably the most beautifully filmed show and movie in ages. Like, every frame is a poster. And one of the things I was most amazed by when I was doing some research for this segment is um, they tried to do some CGI originally for the series, mixed with puppets, and then they ended up going just completely... Um, using all puppets because it had that really specific kind of yeah. look that was true to the film. Completely. And puppetry is really labor-intensive. Yeah, and it's yeah, so talented to yeah. make puppets emote and stuff. Yeah. So I just it gave me a whole new appreciation for that mm-hmm. kind of work. And I just love that Jim Henson's daughter is leading this. As, I think that's so cool. iconic. The, yeah. Hans, the Hensons are really, really yeah. something. All right, well, thank you to our guests today. Katie Natopoulos, Molly Jung-Fast, Lisa Henson, Louis Letier, Matteo Lane, Nikki Paris, Daniel Francesi, and my queen, Fulaki. That suit, still amazing. I want, I want really to see like that. Next week, we've got King Batch, Jerry Springer, Anthony Porowski, Tony Collette, and more. We will be back here Monday at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day and weekend. weekend.